podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching a special Reformation Sunday message, and the sermon title is The Church Reformed, Always Reforming. We hope you are blessed by the message today. So we thank you, God, that even in times of sickness and sorrow and pain, you are there. You are not distant. We pray for our family, Lord, each family, Lord, that is dealing with a physical sickness right now. God, that you would comfort them. Lord, let their time at home as they are trying as best as they can to give this day to you in the midst of pain and discomfort and maybe some distractions, God, that you would give them your favor, Lord. Allow them to be just ministered to today by your word. God, that you would bring them through whatever they're dealing with quickly, restore their health, and Lord, while they are down, Lord, use this time, God, to remind them of, of their frailty, of our frailty, our the human condition, our need, our desperate need for Jesus Christ and what is to come, the resurrection of the body, new bodies one day. Glory to God. So we thank you. Thank you, God, for those that are well and that are here. We pray that you'd minister to us today through your word, through this short time that we have, God, we give glory to you. We praise you. Give us hearts that pay attention, minds that are attentive, Lord. Whatever distractions are causing us to look one way or the other and not to Jesus Christ, not to your word, I pray you'd get that away from us, Lord, and that you'd give us attention today for your word. Breakthrough, stony hearts. Mold our hearts into the fashion of Christ, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, it is Reformation Day, and if you're like, well, I don't really know what that is, uh, it, well, I, just to clarify, it's Reformation Sunday. Tomorrow's Reformation Day. It's, this is the day that for years and years, churches have used this as an opportunity to, to really celebrate the Protestant Reformation, what God has done. So you're going to hear a very, very short amount of history. In fact, I kind of did similar to what Isaac did, and I wrote, uh, I don't know, a couple thousand words, and then I was like, uh, it's too much history, not enough word. So I deleted that, and then we just went with more scriptures. So, but anyway, I'll, I'll share briefly uh, what it is, and then we'll, um, we're going to just rejoice in the truth today. And uh, I, I just pray that God will really minister to you, because it's, it's very clear. It's very clear. If you wrestle with what is the gospel, if you wrestle with what do I say to somebody when they ask me what is the gospel, this will hopefully bring some clarity to that, clarity to that. If you wrestle with what is salvation or what does redemption really mean, I mean, I know what it means to be saved, but I hear these people talk about all these other things, and there seems to be such a depth to redemption that I don't understand. Well, this is, this is what you're going to hear today, and hopefully you'll grasp and hold on to some of these things. See, because the Reformers, there's one thing we know about the Reformers, and what I mean is the, those, those men and women, but primarily these men that God called from the 1300s through the 15, 1600s, they were the reformers. And they did incredible things. And what they, one thing we know about them is that they plunged the depths of God's sovereign grace. And they spent days, months, hours, years pouring their life into these truths. And this is what God used to bring about the Protestant Reformation and bring so much transformation that we enjoy even right now. Couple things to note. Because you have Bibles in your hands, in your language, that is owing to the Reformers. Reformers fought for Bible translations in languages of the common people. Prior to the Reformation, it was just in the language of the magisterium. Only the cardinals, popes, and uh, higher-ups could read it in their language, and it must go through them to pass it down to the peasants and little people like us. So nobody could have a Bible to read. So just the fact that you have a Bible in your hand, you owe that, we owe that to God's work through Reformers and through the Protestant Reformation. That's just one thing in particular. And I would encourage you to study, and if you want some direction in how to study that, um, I'd love to talk to you. Any of the elders, I'm sure, can help you with pointing you in that direction. But when we think of the Reformation, we often think of Martin Luther, I was really blessed by Cade. He just on his own today came up and he put Sola. Uh, Sola was behind every uh, song with <laughs> theme. He had, they had the theme going throughout the whole morning. And all of this was beautiful. And so we think of all these things, but we often think of Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther is the 16th century German reformer that is often credited with the Protestant Reformation. Here's that brief bit of history, so please pay attention. This is not pointless. Luther did not stand alone, though, and I want to just write, uh, bring up a few names and maybe just write these down. These are okay, good, safe, wonderful rabbit trails to go down in your life. Okay, there's many rabbit trails you don't want to go down, but these. So write these names down. Calvin, John Calvin, I'm sure you've heard of him. Calvin was a Geneva, France, right? He was a reformer, incredible man of God, pastor, God used him. Ulrich Zwingli. Figure out how to spell it. You'll, the Google will correct it if you try to search it. Ulrich Zwingli, John Huss, John Wycliffe, John Huss, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale. Some of these, uh, you're like, well, I know Wycliffe. I know about Wycliffe Bible translating ministry. Well, yeah, that's because a dude named John Wycliffe died going to his grave in order to translate Bibles. William Tyndale, we have the Tyndale Publishing House. That's named after William Tyndale, this man who also in his own way, in his own, you know, he had a lot of help, but these, these guys translated Bibles into, their own, into the English language. And then Martin Luther, many, many others. All within just a couple generations, God raised, it was a, what a remarkable time. Within a couple hundred years, all over the world in different countries, these men rising up to the top, God using them to bring about extreme and incredible reform. Faithfully, these men were beating the drum of God's sovereign salvation, justification before God by faith, the, sin, the sinfulness and inability of man to save himself. This is what these guys were preaching. And the doctrines of grace were being shouted from the rooftops in ages when the church was being oppressed by religious fakes. Men who were posing as holy men. Interesting thing, right? These, um, these times where the Roman Catholic Church was predominantly the, the presence of the church. When you think of church, you would think of Catholicism in those days. They ruled everything. They literally ruled everything. Politics, state, government, all of it, it came from the church. Ultimately the rule of the pope. What a different day. We don't live like that anymore, thank God. Why? The reformers. Praise God for what he did through them. But these men preached these truths. Now, they weren't coming up with anything new. They were looking back to old truths. And that's what Reformation really is. So when you think, well, what's the big deal? We don't need Reformation. We don't need reformers. We don't need Reformation Sunday. All we need is the Bible. Ah, that's the whole point. Reformers were fighting against all that had been lost and saying we need the old truths of the Bible. We need the gospel. We need to preach what has been written already. And so we should be grateful for these men. And as we always have done on Reformation Sunday, we look at these five statements. Five statements that begin to emerge triumphantly as we survey that time period. These statements that we, uh, we call the five solas, they weren't coined by the Reformation men. They weren't coined by the Reformers themselves as a complete list. But they were undoubtedly proclaimed in their preaching and writing. So men after their time period looked back and said, these are the principles of what they preached. These are the five things that sort of encapsulated the, the gospel message, the, the message that they were preaching. And so we call them the five solas of the Reformation. So I'm just curious. Um, it's probably familiar to most of you, but is, how many of you have heard of already coming into this room the five solas of the Reformation? Okay. Most of you. Most of you have. And if you've not, then praise God. This is, this is hopefully going to be a, a treat, a blessing for you, but, all, but for all of us. So these are the five solas. These are five statements that preach truth. These are not... Um, extra-biblical in the sense that we cannot find them in Scripture. These are five statements that will continue to distinguish the true church from heresy today. And the same thing that it was doing in the 14th, 15th, 16th century. Five statements that each one of us should be ready to defend at any moment. Hopefully this will help bring some really necessary clarity to you today. So... We ask this question, prior to getting into these statements, the solas, you have to ask this question because these statements, the solas of the Reformation, they mean nothing without this particular clause, and the clause is this, how is one made right with God? 
How is a man or woman, how is an ungodly person justified before a holy God? That is the question. So you ask that question, and then these answers came roaring through the Reformation, preached at the most necessary time and the hardest of times, and these are the statements. Number one, grace alone, sola gratia. You can see just by the translation, sola means alone, gratia means grace. So these are meaning alone. Sola gratia. Number two, faith alone. Sola fide. Christ alone. Solus Christus. Scripture alone. Sola scriptura. And the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. You've learned a little Latin today. Take that with you. You can show off to people. So the rest of our time, what I want to do is defend. I want to defend and exalt these truths as Scripture reveals them to us. My prayer is that our consciences will be bound by these truths and that we stand with men like Luther who were unswayed and even at his very death and persecution or at least the threat of his death and persecution and excommunication from the church, he stood on God's word and God's word alone. And he was unswayed by the world and the pressures and the persecution, the government. Whatever hierarchy, whatever power threatens us, we will prayerfully, by God's grace, be unswayed. So we begin with sola scriptura. We're going to go through, a, we're going to go through several scriptures on each of these, but I really want to get through all of them, and then we'll kind of sum it all up at the end. We begin with sola gratia, grace alone. How is one made right before God? How is someone justified, declared as just by a holy God? How is that? It is by grace alone. We are, are the ungodly. And start with that. How are the ungodly justified before God? Because it has to begin there. How is one made right with God who is not right with God right now, who needs an intervention? And it is the gospel, of course. We would say it is by the gospel. But we must agree with Paul, and this will be on the screen. If you can turn fast there, go to Galatians 1. We would say it is the gospel that is the answer to this question of how is one made right with God. But we agree with the Apostle Paul in Galatians that if it is not a gospel of grace, then it is actually not a gospel at all. So it must be a gospel of grace. And he says this, I am astonished in Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there, is some, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, there was a few things I wanted to share with you, but I, and, I, and I sort of deleted them as a, there, there was sort of, it was sort of secondary. But it's interesting because the Reformation, a lot of it was pushing against the heresy of the Roman Catholic Church. And you might not know this, but the Council of Trent, which is a, a primary doctrine, they sort of funnels its doctrine down to Catholic people is the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent actually claims the opposite of this. If anyone says that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and not works that you can add to it, let him be anathema. The Catholic Church actually says that. The Vatican, or the Vatican approves of that. Now, you may talk to a Catholic that has no idea that that's in their founding documents, but that's another thing altogether. This is what they were excuse me, fighting against. So those who do not wholly ascribe to a gospel of grace are left only with a gospel that depends on human will. And that's what the Reformers were fighting for. Scripture refutes this. If it's a gospel of grace, then it cannot be a gospel of works. And all of the Galatians was written for this very reason. Ultimately, to tell these believers that it depends on grace and not on what you do. You can't do this. It must be because of God. It must be God's grace. And the Scripture refutes the idea of human will being what we depend upon. Romans 3, 23 to 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
All have sinned. That's our condition. We have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And you can see even in that very text, there's three of the solas right there. You might have noticed them. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to receive, be received by faith. So you have sola gratia, sola fide, and you have Christ alone, solus Christus, right there. But ponder this for a second. Even just this text. The doctrine of justification by grace alone is the logical place to go in light of the sinful state and inability of human beings to save themselves. It must be grace alone that brings us to a place of even being able to be justified before God. It must be a work of God. It must be grace alone with no addition from anything else on the outside, no help from anywhere else but God. Sola gratia, or grace alone, is to say that man is in such a depraved state, a fallen, sinful state, an inability to save himself or to become righteous before God, that only God's grace would be sufficient for these things. God must act. God must initiate with no condition. Do you understand what this means? No condition or factor within us that would merit his kindness. Now, I want every believer to really think about this. Think about your day of salvation. Think about the day that you began to believe. And then go back just a little bit further and say, what was God doing? Before I believed, what was God doing? How did I come to believe? How did I come to trust in Christ but it had to be an initiating work of God. It must be God. Unmerited, unconditional, undeserved gift of mercy upon those whom he wills, leaving no room for boasting. Isn't that what the scripture teaches? That there is no room to boast. God must act. And that's what we are calling grace alone. It's God's grace alone. Justification, one being made right with God, comes because God is gracious. Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's what it depends on. That's what our salvation depends on. That's what our being made right with God is dependent upon, is God's mercy, His grace. Now, the Reformers argued adamantly that salvation was all God's doing. Now, you may agree or disagree. I don't know exactly where each one of you are, but is, is salvation, and this is a question that must be asked, is salvation all of God's doing, or does He share that work with us? And these two things can be boiled down to two words, monergism or synergism. We either believe in a monergistic soteriology, study of salvation, salvation, the work of God, monergism, either that's God alone, or we believe in synergism, that we work with God in order to save us. There is no in-between. Either God does it, or he has help from somebody else. Study the scriptures. I lay that before you. Go to God's word. Determine who saves you. What is salvation a work of? Is it God's grace alone, or does he share that with anybody else? Grace alone was the cry of the reformers because it was the cry of the scriptures. That God's word teaches that justification comes because God is gracious and because he, in his own will and at his own timing, for his own glory, sought after sinners. To save them. So then you would ask naturally, and next in line is so then where does faith and belief fit in? Because we did believe and we do trust. So, well, we believe, Sola Scriptura teaches this. We believe that the work of God's grace to save sinners includes the giving of faith, the giving of faith as a gift. Faith being that mechanism by which righteousness is imputed to the sinner. So it's a necessary part of the process, wouldn't we say? We must have faith in Christ. 
If you are to be a follower of Christ, if you are to be redeemed, justified before holy God, you must have faith. So the question is, where did that faith come from? How do we have faith? And then more importantly, what does that faith do? What does that faith do? And so we come to sola fide, faith alone. We're justified by grace alone through faith alone. Now this is central to answering the question of how the ungodly sinner is to be made right with God. There must be faith. Faith alone is what justifies us before God and not our works of righteousness. See, what Martin Luther and the other reformers fought for when they said faith alone was that there was all over their land other things that were being contributed to their salvation, whether it be tradition or the authority of the Pope or some form of penance or confession or anything else that contended with these things and they fought for faith alone. How is one made right with God? By faith. Now one of the clearest texts for this is look at Romans 5, 1. Romans 5, 1. Just one verse, but it's so, so clear. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting once you start thinking about the solas? You're like, it's everywhere. Faith alone in who alone? Christ alone. We are justified by faith. And so Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is what makes us right before God. Faith not being a work in itself, but is surrendering. Because some have argued, well, faith itself is a work. If you have to have faith, then didn't you do something? And the scriptures don't teach faith as a work. We understand that faith alone is a surrendering. Faith is what we are saved. It is the understanding that if faith alone is that which by we are saved, then there is nothing else, there is nothing else that we can bring. If, if it's faith alone, then there's nothing else, nothing else to offer God to satisfy his justice. That's already been said, I love it, it's already been said from the stage this morning. But there's nothing else that we can bring. It is, all I have is Christ. And how do we get Christ? How are we made one with Christ? And Scripture teaches that it is by faith. So many religions boast in faith. We're not, we're not exclusive. Christians are not the only people who say that we have faith. So, what do we do with this? All religions, except for true Christianity, are faith plus religions. They might boast in some sort of faith, but there's always an addition. It's never faith alone. Faith plus, it's faith plus works or faith plus sacrifices. Faith plus confessions and sacraments. Faith plus tradition. Faith plus wealth and success. That's more of our modern day. By the way... There are false religions today that do not boast in faith alone, but in an outside work. You must be wealthy. You must be successful. All of this diminishes the grace alone that we just talked about. You see, you can see how they stack upon each other. If it's not faith alone, then it cannot be by God's grace alone. If it's something that you, err, you merit, if it's some work that you bring to God, then it's not by God's grace alone. So it must be by faith alone. And this is what we see. It, if it is anything else that we add, it diminishes Christ himself. It diminishes Christ himself. Saying that the promise of Christ's sacrifice and his death on the cross was actually not enough. And there's something else that you must bring. But if justification is by grace alone, then it must be by faith alone, even faith itself being a gift of God's grace so that we cannot boast in our faith. We cannot even boast in our faith, brothers and sisters. Sola fide, or faith alone, understands that if a person is to stand justified before God, that person needs a righteousness that is not their own but another's. Now this is something we should all rejoice in. We need an exchange. 
We needed an exchange. And the Reformers called this process the Great Exchange. So I just want to rejoice in this truth with you for a moment. Listen to this truth, hopefully as a testimony of your own life. We were born in sin and already condemned, holding the sin record of our first parents. It was upon us. We were guilty. We actively chose sin and opposed God by worshiping false gods. We did that. False gods of pleasure, self-sufficiency, money, all sorts of other gods instead of the one true creator. That is a sin. We are guilty. But Jesus Christ, but Christ, he lived a perfect and sinless life, fulfilling every law and standard of God's moral perfection. Just imagine that. Every law, every moral perfection, Jesus Christ lived up to it perfectly. Not one fault, not one failure. He did what we could not do in every way of love and obedience to the Father. He did it all. But because there was still a price to be paid for sin, and because life is in the blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, he paid it in full. He paid the penalty. Not only did he live up to righteousness, but then he also paid for our unrighteousness with his own death. We can rejoice in this every day, church, every single day. He paid it in full with his life on the cross of Calvary, putting himself forward as the spotless lamb. Remember, he went to the cross spotless, no sin, and spilling his blood as a propitiation. That word just meaning he appeased the wrath of God that was due to every sinner. He appeased the wrath of God. On behalf of sinful people. Brothers and sisters, Christ went through the hell of God's judgment. He did that. He went through that, the God's judgment and hatred for sin. He took what we deserved, he took it all, and what do we get in exchange? Think about this. Now, this is where faith comes in. By faith alone, we are made right. We are declared just. That means there was a transaction that through Jesus' death on the cross and his perfect life, he exchanges that perfect record with our sinful record. He exchanges it. We get that. How? By faith By faith alone, trusting in him, believing in him, we get perfect righteousness placed on our account, imputed to us, not just infused. There's a difference, imputed, a transfer of record. It's yours now. It's yours. You don't have to work more for it. See, that would be an infusion of faith. And in fact, there were people in the Reformers' day that believed not in imputation of righteousness. I didn't say amputation. Imputation, imputing. They believed in infuted righteousness, that you get an infusion of Christ's righteousness, but it's not his full righteousness, so you must continue to work. You must go to confession. You must live a life of near perfection. And when you don't, you must go to the priest and If you do not fulfill what the priest tells you, then you are still in sin and you still must work harder. What a life. And so the difference between imputed righteousness and infused righteousness is vast. We believe, and Scripture teaches this, in the imputed righteousness of Christ, the declaration of justified in the courts of heaven. That matters. That matters to you as a gospel believer, as a Christian, that if you are justified before God, you are declared righteous in his sight. Praise God. Don't let this go over your head as insignificant. This matters, church. This matters to you. It should matter to you. If you're a follower of Christ, this is the most crucial. Your work doesn't matter as much as this. Your career, your family doesn't matter as much as this truth because it is the very truth that gives us access to God. How was one made right with God? The scripture told us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, by grace alone and through faith alone. But what is the object of our faith? And so we move to the next sola. Because you can't just have faith in whatever you want. 
which is often what the world wants, is just to say, let's just have faith. Let's just believe as hard as we can in something, and that should suffice. But it does not, because Christ alone did the necessary work. And so we move to solus Christus. Jesus Christ is the linchpin for this whole thing. Without Christ, it all falls apart. Without Christ, there's no purpose for the grace of God. There's no purpose of the scriptures, because they do point to Christ supremely, do they not? Christ is the linchpin. Christ alone is to say that out of the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, it was the Son, it was the Son of God whom the Father put forth as the Redeemer. It is Christ who is put forth. It was the Son whom the Spirit raised from the dead. You can even see it within the Trinity, the, mini- the ministry of Father, Son, and Spirit, how it is all about Christ. The Father sent the Son, and the Spirit raised Christ. The Spirit even came upon Christ as a human being and sent him in the wilderness. It's all about Christ. He's at the center of it all. It was the Son of God whom the Spirit raised from the dead. It is the Father, Jesus declared, that draws his elect to the Son. Jesus said that. It is the Father who draws them to the Son. And it is the Spirit whose ministry it is in the church to point us to Christ even today. To point us to Christ over and over again. As we look to the Scriptures, God, teach us. What are we asking Him to teach us? Teach us about Christ. Point me to Christ. I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection. May I know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. It's all about Christ. Solus Christus, this doctrine of Christ alone, is not to say that the Father can't save or the Spirit can't save. So I want to just clear that up. It's not only Christ who saves. It is God who saved. But it is the understanding that for eternity, the plan of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, was to exalt Christ as King. Jesus Christ as King, Savior, Rescuer, Redeemer, Priest, and Mediator. That He would be the one And that was chosen when, how? That's a mystery. In the council of God in eternity past, that this is how it would be, that Jesus Christ would be exalted and that he would be the redeemer. I'm just going to read through three different scriptures. I would just encourage you to read them on the screen or take notes and really meditate on them later. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. Romans 3.25 says, Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Who? Christ. Christ alone. Nobody else. Just Christ. John 14.6, Jesus himself said, I am the way. The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus preached Christ alone. He is the way of salvation. It's about Christ. And at the time of the Reformation, the popes, guys, were elevated to statuses of Christ-likeness, not in the way that we say we want to be more like Christ. No, I'm talking about the very authority of Christ. That's how these popes were elevated. Today, religions are born every day exalting something other than Christ in the place of Savior. So we're not off the hook. We may not be saturated in Roman Catholicism, although it's still very prevalent. But religions are born all the time, and maybe this is a sin of yours. And so maybe solus Christus, Christ alone, is something that you need preached over you and you need to preach to yourself. What else am I exalting as Savior of my life? As Redeemer, as one who's able to rescue, one who's able to put the pieces back together in my broken life. All of us can say, well, we have brokenness and we have problems, we have issues, we have failures. There is a lot of struggle in our life. Well, Christ alone is Redeemer, Savior, Mediator. So who are we looking to? Who are you looking to? Who are you trusting, really trusting in? Is it Christ alone or some other exalted Savior who doesn't deserve to be there? And so if we're honest, we often do look elsewhere for assurance. We look elsewhere for fulfillment, and that is to our shame because Christ alone is worthy of it. 
All of this is really false to look anywhere else but Christ, and it's really illogical, too, according to Scripture, to look anywhere but Christ when you do the actual comparison. John Calvin said this, whoever is not satisfied with Christ alone strives after something beyond absolute perfection. I mean, what more do you need other than absolute perfection? So I'll ask you this, just this question, and I would ask all of your attention to, to, to really think through this. What struggle do you have in your life that is either a direct sin that you are choosing or a result of sin in this fallen world? What struggle do you have? What is causing you harm, pain, inward, inward spiritual turmoil? What is it that is disrupting your life and not allowing you to have peace with God? And then where are you looking because Christ is perfection. And we do a disservice to ourselves when we go over and over again to whether it's some medication, some drug, some counsel that isn't Christ or Christ-centered. It must be Christ alone at the center. You will continue to fail and fall and come up short until that day comes where you say, I just need Christ. Christ alone. All of us in this room who have opportunity to point people towards right counsel and good counsel, are we around people that are struggling? Are we not pointing them to Christ alone? Then we are failing. This is not to say there are not other good things. Even the reformers understood that there were other good things. But we're talking about ultimate Sovereign over all, the one true linchpin, the fix towards to all things, Christ Jesus. Christ was exactly who we needed to save us, and he continues to be the greatest need in our day today. Romans 8, 33 to 34. Look at how Paul exalts Christ. Whom shall bring any, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Listen to his answer. Christ Jesus is the one who died. He's the one who died. More than that, Christ Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you see Christ alone in that passage? Nobody else could fit into that verse. Only Jesus Christ. You see the importance of it? By grace alone, through faith alone, but the object of our faith must be Jesus Christ. Christ died. Christ was raised. Christ is ruling today. Christ is praying for you. What? Right now, he's praying for you? Who's ignoring that right now? I don't care if Christ is praying for me. I believe some of you are ignoring that right now. I would call you to not do that any longer. You are wasting your life. Christ is praying for you. If you have professed Christ as Lord and Savior, do not reject him any longer. Turn to him, trust him, follow him, make him the center of everything. Solus Christus. And of course, you may have noticed that we've been exalting these great truths as we're looking at it. We, we know that they're coming from Scripture. So then naturally, this what I would put as the next one in order would be the fourth sola, sola scriptura. Because we've been looking to Scripture to even give us this answer. Scripture alone. Sola scriptura is to say that Scripture is our final authority, ultimate authority. And we could say that this is the very thing that actually started the Reformation in England, Germany, France, Bohemia, was that these men were reading their Bibles and becoming convinced by plain Scripture that God justifies sinners by grace alone and through faith alone in Christ. And these men took what they read, and they believed it, and they stood against every opposition. They wrote profusely. They preached daily. They witnessed. They prayed they believed these things. I don't know about you, but that's very inspiring to me. <laughs> the church of that day held high esteem for traditions and cardinal rule and papal authority, but 
Scripture placed Christ and faith in him and simple obedience above these things. And so that's the, how their lives followed. It was the Scriptures that Luther wrestled with when he was anxious for the state of his sinful soul. Do you know that Luther was, uh, he wrestled with anxiety probably more than any of us have ever experienced. And I know that there is some deep examples of anxiety in this room. Read the record of Martin Luther and how he dealt with what it would be like, the reality of being a sinful person before a holy God. It wrecked him, and he had no idea. He couldn't figure it out. He was training to be a priest, a priest who was told, if you're this guy, you're the holy guy. You then have the answers for everyone else, and they're going to look to you. But he knew that the reality from Scripture was that he was unrighteous. And his sin haunted him every day, and he wrestled with this, and the anxiety, even the threat of death over his own life. It's incredible what you read about Luther, and so, praise God, that he wrestled with Scripture. There's this one scene known as the Tower Experience with Martin Luther, where he's up in this tower, and he's reading, and he's reading Romans, and Romans 1.17 is just going over and over in his head, and he is getting angry with God, and he cannot stand the thought of thinking about God and his justice, because God and his justice to him just simply meant judgment, and that we are all doomed. He read this verse, the just shall live by faith. How can we be just? How can we be just? I don't want the justice of God, he would say. He didn't understand this. He begged, and actually he said, I beat upon the Apostle Paul begging to know what he meant. Those are Luther's words. He wanted to know, and finally the Spirit of God opened his eyes to see that it is not our active righteousness that justifies us, but the imputed righteousness of Jesus that is accessed by faith. That through faith as a gift we are made just righteous before God, and he was free. This tower experience absolutely changed his, his life. Every time Luther was opposed, he made appeals to the scriptures. See, the scriptures are what revealed truth to him. God's word is what illumined his mind to salvation and the truth of God. And every time he was opposed, he pointed to scripture. Every time he was asked to recant his doctrine, he leaned on Scripture. It was not as though he naively thought that there was nothing else out there or no other good teachers, right? There are good teachers out there. If we were just to read our Bibles, that would be good. But the Scriptures say there are teachers. See, we need to be taught. And so there are teachers. But what is our ultimate authority? Where do those teachers need to get their words and their authority from? So it needs to be... Scripture alone. 1 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's Word. That's what Scripture is. It's God's Word. See, church, this is the authority that leads us to Christ. Our, our, our Bibles, the Word of God revealed to us, written Word, it is what reveals to us salvation. This is the final authority that should govern all matters in your life. Now, this book won't tell you maybe what you're most interested in in your flesh. You, you might say, well, this book cannot tell me how to run a business. It won't teach you algebra, right? It, it, it can't give you the skills to become a skydiver. You say, well, I, I thought it had all authority. Ultimate authority. Ultimate authority. It is over all other authorities, all other teachings, all other traditions. Scripture rules over all of that. God's word is what is sufficient, not for maybe all those other menial things and the actual task completing those things, but God's word is sufficient to save you from hell. Is that not enough? Right? To save us from hell and the judgment of God? To show us the way to God, to salvation, to being justified, that is what Scripture reveals. And to give us a life of purpose that glorifies Him above all things. And so that brings us to the final sola. There's so much more that could be said about each of these. But this last one is probably my favorite. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone 
be the glory. New City Church, God alone gets the glory. God the Father, Son, and Spirit get the glory. How does God alone get the glory? That's a good question to ask. How does he get all the glory? He gets it by actually being God. Triune, unchangeable, omniscient, omnipresent, holy, and sovereign over all things that happen. The only way for him to get all glory is for him to actually be God. To be God, to be fully God, to be sovereign over all things. Everything that happens from beginning to end. And more specifically in our conversation, he's sovereign over the justification of sinners. Look at Ephesians 1. I'll let you turn there. Ephesians 1, 11 to 12. Ephesians 1, 11 to 12. Look at what Paul does here. He says, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Did you guys see that? Do you see what Paul is doing, what he's elevating, and then he's answering a question. Paul elevates sola gratia, grace alone. In him we have obtained an inheritance, and having been predestined, where's grace alone in there? Just so you know, predestination is an evidence of God's grace alone for redemption. We don't have a work in that, just so you know. That is God's work. That is God's foreknowing, foredoing work. He is the one in control of that. Paul elevates the sola gratia. He takes us out of the equation. You are not saved because of you. You're saved because of God. He predestines you. How? To the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's his counsel and it's his will. But then he immediately answers the question, why is it to be this way? So that... We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It's all about his glory. That answers the question. He threw some big things in there. And I think a lot of times we want to pause and go, well, let me just figure this out for a second. Are we really predestined? Don't do that. It's right there. Well, why? For his glory. Well, why did God do it this way? The counsel of his will. Because he's awesome. Because God is God. And he does it as he pleases. And it gives him glory. How else would we look back on our salvation and say, God, you get all the glory and you share none with anybody else. You do not share your glory. He doesn't share his glory. Scripture teaches us that as well. What about my belief, my faith, my seeking? What about that? I've done that. Can I I not get some glory for contributing in this way? And in Martin Luther's day, they would say, what about Mary or, or dead saints? Or what about the Pope or tradition or penance or anything else? Can anyone or anything else get glory? The answer is no. God shares his glory with no one. And the reason this is so is not simply by choice, not simply by God's choosing to not share his glory, but also by his very nature and attributes. God is holy. Therefore, because nobody else is holy like God, he gets all the glory. It's his attribute. God is holy, and his holiness on display is his glory. Figure that out. It's, a, it's huge. How does he display his holiness? The scripture says the whole world is full of his glory. Isaiah 46, 9 says... Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. That's holiness. That's complete separateness. That's ultimately what holiness is, complete separate. No one like him. 1 Samuel 2.2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And then look at Isaiah 6, 3. 
The angels proclaim in this very famous scene with the the temple being filled with his glory and the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I was grateful to hear this from another brother teaching earlier this week. Notice the turn. He should have said, Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of your holiness. But the angel said, Holy, 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 and the result of that holiness is that we see your glory. When God shows his holiness to us, we see glory. It's his holiness on display. Who else is holy like God? I'd love to just see some heads shaking or something. Like, who else is holy but God? Nobody. Nobody, church. Nobody's holy like God. Nobody else gets the glory. God alone gets the glory for every work that he does, but namely the justifying of the ungodly. God gets the glory. And this is what we must see if we're to understand what this all means and praise his glorious grace, as it says in Ephesians. And not only this, but if we're to preach the true gospel, you gospel preachers who want to share Christ and bring Christ to your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, wherever you go, this is crucial. To bring the true gospel to stand firm on the true gospel in an age of relativism like ours and watery doctrine and people being led astray to hell. A Christian is not simply someone who says they believe or says a prayer when you ask them to or someone who keeps the law of God. We know that's true because of Scripture. Because... If what we've said today is true, all this that we've said, and according to Scripture, we say that it is true, God's justifying work is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. But if that's true, then every Christian was once dead and is a miracle and product of altogether holy God's plan to glorify himself in their justification. That is God's work. And that means that every believer in Christ is a miraculous work of God. And if you were to, for a moment, remember, if you were to preach this to yourself, remember, I am in Christ because of God and his incredible grace to save me, to God alone be the glory. How would that change your life? And I think so much is the problems that we have is because we're glory stealing. We just want glory. I don't want to give it all to God. I want, I want some glory. But, but God does get all the glory. And in the end, even in the rebellion, and even with all the, the sin and evil that will run rampant until the end, and all of the victory will still be God's, and Jesus has already won, Amen. glory is his. He, he'll get it anyway. He did this work, just to sort of recap all of this. He did this work of justifying The ungodly, by this way, predestining a people before the world began. And by his invisible spirit, he regenerates sinners from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. How? By his grace alone. No work from the outside, no help from anyone, God alone. And by giving the gift of faith, so that by faith alone and no human work or tradition or law-keeping, the ungodly can receive the imputed righteousness of Christ and be guiltless forever faith alone and Christ the son of God who alone was sent by the father to be sacrificed as the substitute to pay for the sins of his people who alone was raised again and ascended the father will give to the son a church he's doing this work the father will give to the son a church his purchased bride because Christ alone is prophet priest and king forever. And we are his bride. And he is saving people. And all of this being revealed to us from the final and ultimately authority of Holy Scripture, the infallible, profitable, trustworthy word of God to which every other authority must ultimately bow. Scripture alone. And if it is any way other than what we've just described, then God will have to share his glory, and we know he does not do this. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. And where do we go from here with all of this? 
What do we do with this information, these Latin phrases? And is this even important for me? Yes, it's so, so important. This is scriptural. Hopefully, you need just from a brief time in God's word, we know that these solas, these alone statements are God's truth. They are in scripture. They are supported in scripture. They are what we must proclaim. But where do we go from here? We worship him. Worship him because of this work, because of this sovereign grace. Worship him, believe him, and live for him. Proclaim this gospel without compromise and pray for revival and reform, church. Pray for this. And I, when I say reform, don't go to some political mindset. I don't, political reform. No, I mean everything reformed. I mean lives changed, completely changed. And the church of Jesus Christ preaching this gospel. Every church who names the name of Christ preaching this gospel to where God alone gets the glory. One last Latin phrase, and then we'll pray. Ecclesia reformata semper reformanda. You know what that means? The church reformed, always reforming. We need this, church. The church needed to be reformed in that day. It was dark. You've read about it. The dark ages, they were dark. There was death everywhere. Disease, depression, abuse from clergy and hierarchies. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. And out of these time periods, we see men of God and women of God standing on the truth of God's word, reading their Bibles, and seeking the face of God. And that's what we need today. So that we would be a reformed church and always reforming according to the word of God. Amen? Okay, let's go to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a chance to just exalt in you in your word because your scriptures are true and you have pointed us again today to your glorious self-sustaining all-powerful work of redemption in the lives of ungodly people like us. We were once dead in our sins following the prince of the power of the air the sons of disobedience that's who we were. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, he raised us up with Christ and seated us in heavenly places so that for all ages and for all eternity, we might praise your glorious grace. God, if we have held to a belief system or a gospel that minimizes Christ that infuses other works into our faith alone. If we have looked to our salvation and have trusted in some other source other than your sovereign grace, remind us of how absurd it is for dead people to do anything. And we believe we were spiritually dead and you made us alive. Thank you, God. Thank you for sending Christ Thank you that Christ alone is our mediator. And not only are we saved through his mediating work on the cross, his death, burial, his resurrection, his shed blood for the remission of our sins. But today we've been reminded that you're even praying for us, Lord Jesus. And so our faith continues to be in you, in Christ alone. And God, I pray that all of our lives would be for the glory of God alone. That we would all be able to put that as a marker. At the end of each day, to God alone be the glory. And at the beginning of every day, what can I do, God, to give you glory? Whatever is in the way of that, oh Lord, rebuke it by your Holy Spirit, powerfully, lovingly, graciously point out our sin and point us to Jesus, who alone can deal with our sin and has finally and fully paid for it on the cross. Thank you. Thank you, God. May we proclaim this, God, as we face days ahead and very likely days of turmoil, maybe seasons of turmoil. Lord, by your mercy, maybe there will be seasons of incredible fruitfulness for the gospel in these next months and years ahead of us, God. But I pray that we would stand as these men did, all of us in this room, and not be afraid for our lives but proclaim this truth. 
So thank you. Lord, we just give you praise. And I ask that you'd work, especially even in the hearts, especially in the hearts of those who are dealing with unbelief right now and are walking and wallowing in sin. God, draw them to yourself as only you can. And get the glory for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.